0: Welcome to Center Church. Whether you are here in person or you are on gl- online, I'm really, really glad that you're here. And I want to start off by sharing some good news with you tonight, and that is this past weekend, we hosted our last Weekender of 2020, and we had a dozen more people that said, hey, I want to invest my entire weekend into learning more about the church so that I can connect my time, my talent, and my treasure to what God is doing here at Center Church. We had a great time. We had a lot of fun. We played more Disney trivia, and I continue to be bad at it, Okay, but it was awesome. And some of those folks are here in this service tonight. You guys have join serving teams and you're getting deeply connected and that gets me so excited. And here's what I truly truly believe. For some of you, the best New Year's resolution you could make is to sign up for our next weekender, okay? So our next weekender is happening January 22nd through the 24th and that is the way that you get more deeply connected into the life of Center Church. It's how do you start to build meaningful relationships and it's how you start to connect your spiritual gifts and your passions to what God is doing through his church. So if you are the organized person in your family, you need to take notes, okay? You need to set an alarm in your phone and you to make sure that you and, and your spouse or your kids or whoever can, uh, needs to be there is there, okay? So what I want to do to start off tonight is just pray. Just pray for the folks that came this past weekend and then pray for more folks that would sign up in January, okay? So would you pray with me? God, thank you for the 12 folks that, man, gave of their weekend so that they could get more involved in what you're doing here. I pray for them, that you'd bless them in their obedience, that you'd help them to form meaningful relationships and connect, God, their time and their talent and their treasure to what you're doing here. uh, And and more importantly, God, what you're doing through this church in the world. And God, I pray for those that are maybe here right now or listening online that haven't done that yet. I pray that they would, that you'd give them the resolve to follow through and to sign up and join us in January so that we can help them learn more about who you are and get connected to your work here, God. We love you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's an interesting article recently in Vox Magazine, which is not a Christian magazine, that said uh, today in America, there are two Christmases. There are two Christmases. There is the traditional Christmas of Mary and Joseph and Jesus and the shepherds and the angels and the manger. And then there's a modern Christmas. And modern Christmas is all about tacky Christmas sweaters. And it's about eggnog. And it's about Mariah Carey, right? And it's about Christmas episodes of The Office. And the, the, the magazine just went on to say that increasingly modern Christmas is celebrated by more and more people. And traditional Christmas is celebrated "...celebrated less and less." And what that means is that it's more important than ever that we're really clear on what Christmas is about. Why has the church for 2,000 years spent so much time talking about Christmas? And that is what we're going to talk about tonight, because there's no better place in the world and there's no better place in the Bible to learn about the real meaning of Christmas than Matthew chapter one, starting in verse 18. So if you have a Bible, you have an app, go ahead and meet me there in Matthew chapter one, verse 18. And this is Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus. And it's only seven verses long. But it is chock full of meaning, so much so that I'm going to draw out five things from seven verses, okay? And we're going to go fast. You're like, you're going to talk faster than usual? Maybe, okay? We're going to learn a lot today, so stick with me. And I think it's going to be really, really meaningful as we learn five things that Christmas is really about from Matthew chapter 1. All right, here's what verse 18 says. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. If you're taking notes, here's number one. Christmas is about the supernatural birth of Jesus. Christmas is about the supernatural birth of Jesus. Even if you just look at how Matthew wrote this text, you see that. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. So the whole section is about the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, why are Christians so obsessed with the birth of Jesus? Right? Muslims don't talk about the birth of Muhammad. Buddhists don't talk about the birth of Buddha. Why have Christians for 2,000 years spent a month of every calendar year, a 12th of their existence, talking about the birth of Jesus? Why do we do that? Because we believe that the birth of Jesus is unlike any other birth that has ever occurred. That after listing 42 generations of normal biological births, he married her and they had him, Matthew interrupts his genealogy with the one supernatural birth that has ever occurred. And he's very clear. He doesn't leave anything. Hazy. He says, this is what happened before Mary and Joseph came together. So that means before they were physically intimate, Mary was found to be with child from whom? From the Holy Spirit. This is what theologians refer to as the virgin birth. Okay. This is your theological uh, term of the week, the virgin birth, which means this, that in a supernatural way that has never been repeated, God, the Holy Spirit, caused God the Son to be conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary with no contribution from Joseph or anyone else. That that this thing happened one time, it's the only time that it's happened in the history of mankind. And it's become popular over the last 100 years, definitely in the last 50 years, to say something like this. Well, I believe that the Bible has a lot of wisdom in it, and I believe Jesus was an insightful teacher, but I don't believe in the virgin birth. That's ridiculous. I mean, you can't believe in that and be a modern, educated, Western person. We know that virgin birth doesn't occur. It's biologically impossible. And if you are a strictly naturalist person, so if that means you believe there is nothing that is supernatural, there is no such thing as God, there is no spirit whatsoever, then you'd be right. Then this wouldn't be possible. But if that's your worldview, if that's your belief system, you actually have a lot of big problems to deal with. I'll just give you three that come to mind. Number one, where did everything come from? Where did all of this come from? And most people would say, well, oh, it came from the Big Bang, right? The Big Bang happened, and then over trillions of years, things evolved, and eventually here we are. Well, where did the substance come from that caused the Big Bang? Uh, I don't know. It's always been there. So, it, so it's eternal? Yes. Oh, so that's God, right? Ooh, okay. Maybe we're not so strictly naturalists, right? Or how about this one? Um, if, we, if we got here through survival of the fittest, right? Tooth and claw, the strong, eating the weak, why should we care one bit about discrimination, injustice, or human rights? We don't get mad when a lion eats a gazelle, right? We're not like reposting that. But, and yet, almost everyone I talk to has, a, has just this deep intuitive sense that oppression is wrong, that human rights are a real thing, and that we should work against injustice. But if you're strictly naturalist, if you think we just got here by the strong oppressing the weak, that's completely contradictory to your worldview. Or how about this last one? Um, if, if this world is all there is, and eventually the sun's going to burn out, and then everything on earth is going to wither and die and be forgotten, why do anything? Right? Why, like, why do anything? If that's the case, then there's no real purpose or meaning in life. And here's the thing. We all know deep in our hearts that that's not true. And here's what I found with my naturalist friends. My friends who say they don't believe in anything supernatural, that this world is all they are, never live that way. They are intellectual atheists, and they are practical theists. They believe in God. They believe in something, right? They live much more differently than they say. But here's the thing. If your worldview is that, yes, God exists, then you have a lot of good answers to those questions. You say, yeah, all this started because there is an eternal creator who created it, and that's why it's designed the way it is, and that's why there's so much beauty in the world, and that's why, man, things work together in this incredibly intricate way. And you say, that's why there are such things as human rights. That's why oppression is wrong. That's why we need to work against injustice. Because God loves justice. And God is righteous in his nature. And God cares for the marginalized and the poor and the weak. So that's why we do it. And you say, that's where my purpose and meaning comes from in life. It doesn't come from winning all the cash and prizes. It comes from the fact that I was created by God and given spiritual gifts to be used for his mission in the world. And one day I will be with him forever. And you have really good answers to those questions if you believe in God, and and here's here's what that means. If you believe in a God who created all things and who created natural law, then it follows that that God could also supersede natural law when it suited his purposes. I mean, does does that just make sense? Now, he probably wouldn't do it very often, right? I mean, they're his laws after all. But if God wanted to make a really big deal about something, what better way to do it than to overturn the natural law that functions 99.99% of the time? Well, that is what Christians believe God did at the birth of Jesus. That in a supernatural, miraculous way that has never been repeated in human history, God, the Holy Spirit, calls God the Son to be conceived in the womb of a virgin named Mary. That's what Christians believe, and it is entirely reasonable to believe it. In fact, I love what Craig Keener said. He's a New Testament scholar. He put it this way. If any birth in history should be miraculous, then it should be the birth of the Messiah. If, if, if any birth in all of history should be miraculous, then it should be the birth of the Messiah. Or another way to say that is Jesus' birth was unique because Jesus himself is unique. Jesus' birth was unique because Jesus is not like us. Jesus is not just another religious teacher. Jesus is the eternal, is eternal God, the Son, taken on flesh as Jesus of Nazareth. So in a supernatural way, the Holy Spirit caused Christ to be conceived in Mary's womb. Christmas is about the supernatural birth of Jesus, and it is entirely reasonable to believe in it. Okay, that's number one. Look back at verse 18 with me. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Here's number two. Christmas is about God's pursuit of you, not your pursuit of him. Christmas is about God's pursuit of you, not your pursuit of him. I love what the verse says. Mary found that she was pregnant. That must have been a very strange day, right? Like, okay, what's going on here, right? Here's here's the important thing. Mary didn't ask to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Mary didn't complete a religious training program and was awarded with the virgin birth, right? Mary was just living her life. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, God initiated to her and said, you are going to be the mother of the Son of God. You're going to be the mother of Jesus Christ who came to take away the sins of of the world. Christmas is about God coming down to you. Why? Because you could never go up to him. Christmas is about God coming down to you because you could never go up to him. And friends, that is the opposite of religion. It is the opposite of religion. Religion is you work your way to God. That's what religion is. And there's old religion and there's new religion. Old religion is I say my prayers, I go to church, I give money, and I do Habitat for Humanity builds, and because of that, I'm a good person and God will accept me. Well, there's a new version of religion. It it goes like this. I shop at Whole Foods, okay? I live a sustainable lifestyle. I ride my bike to work. I repost the right things on social media, and I'm the most tolerant person I know. And because because I do those things, I'm a good person, and God will accept me. It's the same thing, right? It's, it's It's different activities, but it's the same concept. My performance makes me a good person. But Christmas flips that upside down. Christmas absolutely flips that upside down because it says, look, you could never be good enough to get to God. You could never build a big enough stairway to heaven. They tried. It didn't work. Read Genesis 7, I think, or where the Tower of Babel is. right? You could never do it, so God came down to you. And the supernatural birth of Jesus should both humble us and encourage us. It should do both. And here's why. Stick with me. You are so bad that the only way that you could be saved was for God the Son to take on flesh and die for you. That's really bad. Okay? Like, that's terrible. That means there were no other options. We tried it all. You're not good enough. You can't do it. Jesus had to come. So it should humble you. But it should also encourage you. Because you know what that also means? Jesus was willing to do it. You are so valuable to God, even in your brokenness, even in your sin, that Jesus Christ was willing to suffer for you. He was willing to be humiliated for you. He was willing to be weak for you. He was willing to leave heaven and be born as a child to a poor family in a barn so that you could be saved. The supernatural birth of Christ should both humble and encourage you. Can we have an honest moment? None of us would do for someone else what Jesus has done for us. None of us would. And the reason is because we are pretty much selfish people. And I know that's a bit forward, but I can prove it to you. All right, when you take Christmas pictures with your family in about a week, what's the first thing you're going to do when you see the picture? You're going to find yourself. And if grandma looks great and all the cousins look great, and you look terrible, you're gonna be like, we're retaking the picture. Bring them back, right? You know you do this. You're like, he knows my life, right? We're just self-oriented people. We almost can't help just like looking to ourselves over and over and over again, and that is the opposite of Jesus. Jesus' entire mission in coming was selfless. Nothing about coming to earth was easy for Jesus. Nothing was comfortable. He got nothing but weakness and humiliation and pain when all he had was power and honor and glory and comfort. But he did it because that's who he is. He did it to glorify his father and to save his people. And friends, here's the deal. No matter what you do on your own, you will never get over your own selfishness. You never will. You might hide it. You might cover it up, but it'll always be down in there and you know it. But through repentance and faith in Christ, as his spirit comes into your life, you know what it starts to do? It starts to make you less like yourself and more like Jesus. It starts to make you less self-oriented and self-focused and more others-oriented because that is the very character of who Jesus is. Number two, the second thing we learn about Christmas is that Christmas is about God's pursuit of you, not your pursuit of God. Let's keep reading. Look at verse 19 with me. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Have you ever noticed that in nativity sets, Joseph always looks like he's 40, right? And has a full beard, right? That is historically inaccurate, okay? Here's what we know about first century Jewish culture. Most people got married as teenagers. And if you lived in a small rural town like Nazareth, you probably got married even younger than other people. So historians estimate that Mary was between 14 and 15 and Joseph was between 16 and 17. Look, he didn't have a full beard, right? He had acne and that scraggly gross beard you can grow in high school. You know, some of y'all still got that beard, right? You know what I'm talking about. I, I can't grow a beard. That's why my wife won't let me. Here's the th- I mean, that's the reality of what we're talking about. Mary and Joseph were not like this like established couple. They were a very poor teenage couple that was betrothed to be married. Now, what does betrothed mean? Well, betrothed is like a much more serious version of engagement. So here's how it worked. You would take your vows as husband and wife, but you wouldn't celebrate it publicly or consummate it personally for 6 to 12 months. But it was so serious that if you ended a betrothal, it was a divorce. There was no just like breaking off an engagement. It was that's how serious it was. So they were betrothed. They were like might as well have been husband and wife. And Joseph finds out that Mary is pregnant. And if if you're engaged and your fiance is pregnant and you you know you haven't been sleeping with her, what do you you? This is not what you assumed. It must be the son of God, right? Certainly that's what's happened. The virgin birth has occurred. No, you're like, all right, Mary's been, you know, I don't know, like hooking up with a Roman soldier or something, right? That is what Joseph thought. And just put your mind there. 17-year-old Joseph. 17-year-old Joseph finds out that the woman he's betrothed to Mary, that he's been looking forward to, to Mary, and he's, he's almost there. He's like saving up money so they can do this thing. All of a sudden is pregnant. And so he decides to do what every single man in this room or woman in this room would do. We're ending this thing. She's obviously been unfaithful to me, right? I can't trust her. I'm going to divorce her. But what's amazing about his character is that the Bible says he was a just man at 17. And so he could do this one of two ways. He could shame her publicly or he could divorce her privately. And he decided, I'm going to divorce her privately. Okay, so you see a little bit of Joseph's character. I'm going to divorce her privately. I want to, I want to save her kind of the public shaming of what this would be. And in that moment, God intervenes. Look at verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph. Son of David, do not fear. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Here's the third thing that we learn about Christmas. Christmas is about young men stepping up. Christmas is about young men stepping up. Mary's fate was in Joseph's hands because here's what we know from history. Joseph could move on from this, but Mary could not. Do you know what Jews and Romans in the first century did to teenage moms who got pregnant out of wedlock? They killed them. They walked them out, side of the town, and they stoned them to death. That still happens in some cultures today. That is what was going to happen to Mary if Joseph decided to, to divorce her. And that kind of shocks us, and we're like, oh, my goodness, how could they be so primitive? We do the same thing today. We don't kill the mom. We just kill the baby. I mean, what does our culture tell teenage moms to do who get pregnant out of wedlock? Just have an abortion. Just have an abortion. Do you know abortion clinics are promoted on Google. Millions of dollars of advertising are being put towards abortion clinics so that teenage moms will end their pregnancies. And do you know why most teenage moms end their pregnancies? It's not because they're terrible people. Do you know why? It's because the father of their child pressures them to. Their boyfriend says, go take care of this. Because the boyfriend, oh, I, wanna, I wanted to act like a man last night in bed, but I don't want to act like a man this morning. I didn't sign up for this. This is not my life plan. I want to go live my life and do my thing. You need to take care of this. I'm not taking responsibility. If Joseph had acted like most men in our culture act today, Mary would have died and Jesus would never have been born. Praise God that 17-year-old, blue-collar, illiterate Joseph stepped up and said, yes, God, I will take responsibility for this woman and I will take responsibility for this baby that is not mine and I'll get a job, and I'll sacrifice, and I will care for her, and I'll care for this baby, and I'll raise this child so that your people can be saved from their sins. Look, if 17-year-old Joseph can raise the son of God, then you can get up in the morning and read your Bible. Then you can stop looking at porn. Then you can get a real job. Then you can ask that girl out. Our church is full of young men, and some of you need to step up. I am so sick and tired of young women coming into our church and saying, I'd love to be in a relationship with a Christian guy, but there's none around. I'm like, no, there's, there's young guys around. They're just all playing video games till 3 in the morning and sleeping till noon. It's like, get a job. Like, move out of your parents' house. Like, do what men have been doing for thousands of years. Stop looking at your phone and look somebody in the eyes. Shake someone's hand. Have hard conversations. Like, be a man. If Joseph didn't step up, if Joseph did what most people in our culture did, Jesus is never born and we have no hope. Praise God that Joseph wasn't an American 17-year-old man. Because you know what Joseph would have been doing? Sleeping. Or eating. Or something. There is a fear famine of young godly men in the church. Did you know that? You know, statistically, young women attend more, serve more, give more, and go to the mission field more than young men. Now, praise God for that. Praise God for godly young women. Praise God for Mary's, where are the Josephs? Where are the Josephs? Here is my heart for Center Church. Here's my vision for Center Church. This is what I want. I want people to come into our church and to go, I cannot believe how many young godly guys are here. I want them to come up to us and go, like, what, what are you doing? What's in the water? Like, like, that guy got a haircut. And, like, that guy has a real job and has stuff on the walls of his apartment, you know? And, like, serves in the kids' ministry. That is my heart for Center Church. And, look, you can do it. People have been doing it for thousands of years. You just have to stop making excuses and you have to step up. You know a good way to know if you're doing this right is? You should seem older than you look. You should seem older than you look. Somebody should, and this, honestly, we have some awesome young guys here, and I'm thinking of one in particular, and I was talking to Justin about this, and I was like, how old is he? Because like he looks, the guy I'm thinking about like, looks like he's like 24, but he acts like he's 30. And I'm like, ah, oh, godliness, godliness. He's got a real job. He's like in a solid relationship. He's like defined things, right? It's not just like we're randomly friends, but we do you know, we're like texting a lot and we're doing things, but he won't just ask me out. Here's a great tip. Look her in the eye, say, I'd like to take you to dinner. That's, a, that's easy, right? You will put yourself in such a different category. If you do that, you'll be like hard to resist, okay? This is what needs, it's not that complicated, okay? This is what needs to happen. But do you know why most men don't do this? Honestly, I put myself in this category too. When I don't step up and take responsibility, do you know why? It's because of fear. It's because of fear. It's because you're afraid if you ask her out, she might say no. And you're afraid if you try hard and fail, then you can't hide behind the excuse of, I just didn't try hard. Oh, I'm all up in your business now. That's what guys do. Do you know why guys act like they're slackers and they just want to smoke weed all the time? It's because if they try and fail, they have nothing to fall back on. But if I act like I'm I'm just a slacker and I don't really try hard, then when I fail, it's like, oh, well, I could have succeeded. I just didn't try hard. Do you see what the angel said to Joseph? Do not fear. Do not fear. Here's the thing, guys. If you are in Christ, you have been given an identity that cannot be impacted by failure. God looks at you and calls you son, and His Spirit dwells within you, and that means you really can go out there and do things. You can take risks. You can ask a girl out, and if she says no, it's okay. You can go for a job and not get it, and it's okay. You don't have to succeed all the time because your 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 value to God is not based on your performance. You can get out there and live the life that you were created to live. You can take on responsibility that God designed you to take on. Here's the reality. Honestly, guys are like pickup trucks. We ride a whole lot better with a load in the back, okay? It's just true, like you will be much more godly if you just take on some responsibility. So here's what we all need to do, you ready? We all need to repent of acting like an adolescent when biologically we are a man, okay? If biologically you were a man, if 2000 years ago you would've been expected to go out and hunt something, bring it back and then marry someone, then it's time to put the video games down, okay? You can play them sometimes. Don't play them until four in the morning. Go get a job, okay? Anyway, Christmas is a call for young men to step up. It just is. Praise God that Joseph did that, that Joseph stepped up so Jesus had a dad. And so Mary had somebody to protect her and so that Mary could raise Jesus and so that we could have a savior. Look, Christmas is about young men stepping up. Two more things. Look at verse 21 with me. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. So the name Jesus means the Lord saves, the Lord saves. And the angel told Joseph to name the child Jesus because it defined his entire purpose in coming, which leads us to number four. Christmas is about our need for a savior. Christmas is about our need for a savior. From before Jesus's birth, his purpose was crystal clear. He did not come to teach. He did not come to heal. He did not come to feed the poor or affect social change or promote family values. He did all those things, But the primary purpose for Jesus coming to earth was to save his people from their sins, simple. And there's two things that we need to see from that statement. Number one, Jesus has a people. Jesus has a people and you are either in Jesus' people or out of Jesus' people. There's no middle ground. In that sense, Christmas is a very exclusive message. There are not many ways to God. There's one and he was born 2000 years ago in Bethlehem. John 14, six, Jesus said, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. No one comes to the Father except through me, and I know that it's hard for Americans to stomach. I know we don't like that idea of exclusivity, but let me just give you two thoughts here. Number one, the exclusivity of Christianity is the most inclusive exclusivity there's ever been because the Bible says anyone can come. It doesn't matter your race. It doesn't matter your educational background. It doesn't matter your moral record. Anyone can come. It is very inclusive in that sense, but it's exclusive in the sense that the only way you can come is through Christ. And here's another thought. If there were multiple ways to God, then Jesus' entire life was superfluous. Have you ever thought about that? If there were other ways, like if you could get to God through Islam or through Buddhism or through being kind and genuine and tolerant, then Jesus' entire life was pointless. He didn't need to take on flesh. He didn't need to be humiliated. He didn't need to be tortured and to be crucified. It was all superfluous. But what the Bible says repeatedly is that there is only one way to God. There are not many ways up the mountain. There is one way, and that way is Jesus Christ. It is available to all, to all who would come, but there's only one way. Jesus has a people. You're either in that people or you're not in that people. The second thing we need to see is that Jesus' people need to be saved from their sins, which means Jesus didn't come for people with perfect Christmas cards and perfect Instagram accounts. Jesus didn't come for people with no problems that had their whole act together. Jesus came for people with issues. Jesus came for people with histories. Jesus came for people with brokenness. Jesus came for people who were hurting. Jesus came for people with regret. Jesus came for people who continue to struggle with that same thing over and over and over again and they can't seem to get over it. Jesus came for people like you and me. He didn't come for perfect people. In fact, he said to the Pharisees, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So if you are righteous and you don't think you need a savior, then Jesus did not come for you. But if you're like me and you know that you need a savior badly because you have way more good intentions than you have follow through, and you have sins that just keep cropping back up and up and up, and you've done things and you've said things that you wish no one would ever find out about, then Jesus came for you. Jesus came to save his people from their sins. Praise the Lord. Verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, behold, The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Here's the last thing, number five. Christmas is a call to respond. Christmas is a call to respond. Joseph did the two things that the angel commanded him to do. He married Mary, and he named the baby Jesus. I love how Matthew Henry, a Puritan pastor, put it. Joseph did what the angel had bidden him, speedily without delay and cheerfully without dispute. Speedily without delay and cheerfully without dispute. That's an entire sermon in itself right there. Right? So often we obey like kicking and screaming and dragging our feet. But Joseph did it speedily without delay and cheerfully without dispute. Where do you need to start obeying speedily without delay and cheerfully without dispute? We're thinking about. Here's the thing. Christmas requires a response. You cannot hear this story and understand what it means and say, that's nice. You cannot hear this story and say, isn't that a sweet idea? Look, this is a startling, challenging, confronting, wonderful message. Here's what Christmas says. You are a sinner. And if something doesn't change, you are going to hell. Eternal, conscious, torment for your sins but the incarnation of Jesus Christ, but Christmas. But Jesus loved you so much that he took on flesh and he was born to a poor family in a middle of nowhere town. And he lived 33 years of suffering and perfection. And he hung on a cross that he didn't deserve. And he was betrayed by his friends, and he was slandered by his enemies, and all of the wrath of God that you deserve was poured out on his shoulders so that you could be forgiven and so that you could be redeemed and so that you could be brought into the family of God. You either accept that or you reject it, but you do not look at it and say that's nice. You don't say that's sweet. No one in the first century said Christmas was sweet because they understood it. Do you understand it? Because if you do right now, you should be moved to respond. Some of you, some of you need to respond by focusing more on the birth of Christ this Christmas. And you need to get rid of all the distractions and all the other stuff you stress about. You need to remember that for 2,000 years, the point has not been target. The point has been the incarnation. Others of you, some of you young men need to step up and you need to stop making excuses And you need to take on responsibility. And you need to start doing what God created you to do. I want to see 15 applications to our kids' ministry next week, okay? Some of you, honestly, need to rest in the gospel. What I love about Christmas, it is such a clear illustration of how the gospel works. You did not get up to God. He came down to you. And if that's how you were saved, why are you living like now you have to try to climb back to him? He came down. Emmanuel, God with us. Some of you just need to rest in that. Some of you need to lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Rest in him and him alone, gloriously complete. You can rest. You can have satisfaction. You can have peace because you're not earning your way to heaven. Jesus has already done it all. And some of you need to repent and believe. Some of you need to go from knowing about Jesus to being saved by Jesus. You need to respond just like Joseph did and say, Jesus, I don't understand everything. I don't know how all this works, but I know two things. That I'm a sinner who needs to be saved and you are a savior who came for sinners. And so in this moment, I confess that I'm a sinner and I repent of trying to be the Lord of my own life and I ask you to forgive me and I ask you to become the Lord of my life. And if you do that today, Jesus will come into your life and he will start doing things that you never thought possible. He will change you in ways that you haven't hoped of in your wildest dreams. And his spirit will work in you and change you and connect you to the mission of God around the world and give you a sense of purpose and meaning that you didn't know was possible. And friends, that would be the greatest thing that you could receive this Christmas is the gift of salvation. My favorite Christmas song is Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. I just want to end this. this. Come Thou Long Expected Jesus Born to set Thy people free. From our fears and sins, release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Let us find our rest in thee. Find your rest in Christ today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for Christmas. Thank you for what a clear picture it is of your character, of your extraordinary grace, and the way that you went to every length to save your people from their sins. God, I pray that we would be reminded of that, renewed in our love and our worship for you, and that those that are here that don't know you would repent and believe. God, give us faith. Give us faith to obey, even when we don't understand everything like Joseph did. And help us to make a difference in this world in the way that he did. We love you. I pray all this in Jesus' name.